Thank you, Lee and the choir. It is a pleasure to be here in the Lord's house this morning and a happy new year to you and your family. Hope you all have had a, had a wonderful 2022 and have an even better 2023. Uh, this morning as we uh, gather together in this place, I'd just like to uh, remind you that I am not Pastor Ken. I'm uh, Pastor Rich Douglas here, the student pastor here at First Baptist Noonan. Uh, Pastor Ken is actually out of town this week, and uh, so he will be back in town with us in a couple weeks. We have another guest speaker next week that you won't want to miss, so we encourage you to join us next week for that. Uh, but this morning, as we begin, the title of this message is The Promises of God. Now, before we get into the meat of the message, I'd like to uh, just, if you haven't gotten to, to know all the members of my family yet, uh, my wife Jeannie and uh, our, my daughter Kaylee and Joshua. Kaylee's about eight years old and Joshua's five. And so we've had a lot of fun memories this past Christmas break. We've had some weeks off together. And until I had kids, I never knew the importance of that uh, line from that Christmas song of uh, mom and dad can hardly wait till school starts again. Uh, but we're looking forward to that. Um, but also during these time together, we've been able to just do a lot of fun activities. And so naturally, um, the kids have been asking, uh, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? And like a lot of parents, I'll say, well, we'll do it later. I'm in the middle of this right now. I'm in the middle of that. And, and they'll say, well, when they, I say later, they'll always say, well, do you promise? I say, yes, I promise. But do you pinky promise? And then I know when they say that, it's a whole new level of expectation when that happens. And so... As we get older, those promises typically no longer use pinkies. They kind of go from that to handshakes and uh, paper documents and the end user license agreements that nobody actually reads. Uh, the point is, is that we expect people to take promises seriously as children and as adults. And of course, this being the new year, many people just 24 hours ago promised themselves that this year would be different. This would be the year. It hasn't worked for the last however old they are, but, but this year will be different. So just an interesting study was done about the New Year's resolutions for this year. About 39% of U.S. adults set New Year's resolutions every year. Uh, 59 of these young adults, 18 to 34, have New Year's resolutions which make it the largest demographic that sets these goals. 48% want to exercise more, making it the most popular New Year's resolution. And the top three resolutions are typically always health-related. 23% quit in the first week, and only 36% make it to the next month. About 9% successfully keep their New Year's resolutions. Did you catch that one? Less than 10% actually keep the promises that they make to themselves. The truth is that nobody, no matter how many pinky promises or handshakes or documents that you sign, we all break promises sometimes. We let people down. Typically, we're more critical of other people than we are of ourselves. We tend to give ourselves more grace than we do to other people. But there is one who has never broken their palm for a promise because he is faithful and he is perfect. God is the only one who fits that description, of course. All throughout Scripture, we see God being faithful to his people time and time again, even when they are unfaithful to him. God would enter into these promises, these covenants with people, this word covenant, this word we don't use very often anymore, is described as an oath-bound promise whereby one party solemnly pledges to bless or serve another party in some specified way. We see God making these promises in Scripture through Abraham and Moses and David and many more after that. Ultimately, these Old Testament covenants come down to the Lord saying, I will be their God and they, he will be my people. They will be my people. The Old Covenant, also known as the Mosaic Covenant, named after Moses, was conditioned on Israel's obedience to the law, which they often broke. 
The law showed the people how much they were in need of things to change. Finally, God established the new covenant, which was different from the old one in several ways. Through the new covenant, God's people could experience regeneration or a new birth, the full forgiveness of sins, an intimate knowledge of God, and the assurance that this covenant was unbreakable. This new covenant, only possible through Christ, is a promise that God makes to everyone who believes on him. It is only through the death and resurrection of Christ that God invites all of humanity into this new covenant. And at the end of the day's message, we're going to be having a time of invitation and following that, a time of the Lord's Supper, where we remember and reflect on that covenant that he made. However, there are a few points of God's promise that I want us to talk about and discuss today. And my hope is that by understanding these promises, we can enter into this new year with confidence and trust in God. So first, this morning, let's open our Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, excuse me, 14 through 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. And I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, based on today's text, I'm going to be giving you three things that God has promised us, as well as how Christ's sacrifice ties into each one of them. The first point is this, God promises a new motivation. God promises a new motivation. Now let's look back at verses 14 to 15 for just a moment. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us. It compels us towards the things of God. It pulls us towards him. God changes our hearts much in the same way he did for his own people in Ezekiel 11 verse 19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them, give, excuse me, I'll remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So these are people who had hearts of stone that God changed to a heart of flesh. Their hearts were hardened towards God. They didn't want anything to do with God. And God wanted their hearts drawn towards him. God's desire is that our hearts would be changed Having hearts of stone means that we were dead to the spiritual things of God. But when he gives us a heart of flesh, we become alive to the things of God in a way we couldn't before. We experience the spiritual blessings of God in a way that we were incapable of experiencing before. That same desire from the Lord is echoed in Jeremiah 24, verse 7, 
I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. What we have to understand is that we are incapable of changing our own hearts. We cannot change ourselves in the same way that we cannot save ourselves. We're incapable of doing this. We need God to do the work that we cannot. Humanity has always tried to attempt to save themselves from the good works that they do, how they treat other people, the things that they leave behind, yet all of these things pale in comparison to what God has already done for us. Through this process of change, we die to our old way of life and we are reborn into a new life. In other words, Christ died that we might die. This is our first sub-point this morning. Christ died that we might die. So from that new motivation, he encourages us that we would die to ourselves. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Like that thief on the cross, we are there beside him. Paul is saying here that we are to nail ourselves to the cross as well. We crucify our desires, our plans, our motivations on the cross. We no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. We, who had nothing, are saved by the one who gave everything. This theme continues in Romans chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to be dead to sin and alive to God. The problem is, though, church, is that we often want both. We want to be alive to sin and alive to God at the same time. In other words, we want to be free to do whatever we want, to make whatever plans we want to plan, plus the assurance that we'll go to heaven when we die. See, so many people are very comfortable with the idea of God being their Savior, but less so with Him being their Lord. It's two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Him being Lord of our life means that He's the boss. He's the one sitting in the big chair. He's the one that we need to surrender our plans to. But when we choose our own way, that's, that's not freedom, as much as we might think it is. It's slavery to sin. It's choosing self over salvation. It's choosing death over life. Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's amazing that all throughout Scripture we see different authors, but the same message repeated again and again as if God's trying to tell us something here. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 24 through 25. Christ died that we might die, that we would die to our flesh. And the thing is, is that God is not going to do that part for us. In other words, he's not just going to suddenly take all of our earthly desires away in one fell swoop. 
It's not as if we have an overnight miracle where suddenly everything that we were changes in a moment and suddenly we don't have those desires anymore. There is a moment that happens where things change, where you are justified before God, but the process of sanctification takes a lifetime. We must take up our own cross daily, crucify our selfishness each day, and take part in the work and the discipline of sanctification every day of our lives. It is a difficult journey, but it is possible through Christ. I believe one of the reasons that the church in our country and the way it is today is that we don't often say things the way Jesus did in the sense that count the cost. Choose this day whom you'll serve. This is not an easy decision. Too often we make the decision to follow Christ so appealing without mentioning the fact that this will be hard. We don't often warn people about following Christ. We invite them as we should, but we don't often warn them and say, it is a difficult journey. However, it is the most rewarding thing that you could ever do with your life. And because some people come into the faith thinking or believing that it would be easy, they're suddenly surprised when things get difficult because suddenly they have an enemy that's actively seeking to destroy them. We as the church ought to come together to encourage one another in the difficult situations, whether it's the broken dryer at home or a family member who's passed, to be there for one another, to encourage one another and say, hey, I'm with you in this. I'm praying for you through this. Our first point was God promises a new motivation, but the second is this. God promises a new mindset. God promises a new mindset. Let's look at our verses again from 1 Corinthians. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. For verse 16, some versions will say, we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. God gives us a new mindset. He gives us a new way to see the world, a new set of eyeballs, if you were. We no longer see through the eyes of our sinful human nature, but we begin to see the world in the way God sees it. You know, time and again, we see God choosing to work in ways that normal people would never have planned for, or expected, or anticipated. Rather, we see God choosing to use people that nobody in their right mind would ever choose or select. Remember the story of the prophet Samuel coming to the home of, of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel? And this proud father, Jesse, is bringing out all these sons and he's, he's showing them off to Samuel. He's showing them all these, you know, look at my strapping young boys here. And none of them, none of them are going to be the next king. And then suddenly, David, his youngest, is almost an afterthought in his own father's mind. But when Samuel saw Jesse's other sons who seemed to fit the bill, remember God told him in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then later on in Scripture, we see that David is called a man after God's own heart. What God told Samuel ought to do two things for us. It ought to change the way we see ourselves and it ought to change the way that we see other people. 
It shows us that God can use anyone, that he will use anyone, and that anyone is you. When you think about God using you, what comes to mind? Is it fear, worry, or is it excitement and anticipation? May we have the same spirit as David and willingly step into the valley of our giants and look them in the face and defy them, not in the power of our own strength, but in the power of our God. This ought to also change the way that we see other people. We ought to never look at somebody and decide in our own minds what they can or cannot do for the kingdom of God. We ought to encourage each other towards good work, towards good works, and see one another as one of a kind masterpieces, like Scripture describes us. This new mindset that God gives us is described in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The renewal of the mind that Paul talks about here is only completed. It's only worked through, through prayer, through worship, reading scripture, and being in fellowship with God's people. If you are not filling your heart and mind with the things of God, other things will take up that space. Christ died that we might die, but he also died that we might live. He died that we might live. Live, live for what? For ourselves? Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 says it so well. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Not something as meager as living for ourselves, other people, or even for a, a better world. No. Through his sacrifice, life has true meaning. A deeper meaning beyond what any of the world's greatest philosophers could come up with. Life is no longer about seeking our own comfort or advancement, but rather it is about serving and glorifying Christ. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus tells his disciples that he has come that they may have life and have it more abundantly or to the fullest. He's talking about an abundant and rich life here now as well as a life to come. God doesn't want us to waste our lives in the rat race, seeking money and power. He doesn't even want us to find our happiness in other people. A true, joyful, and overflowing life comes from following God. Later in Romans 6, 4, we read, We were buried before, therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If that verse sounds familiar, it's one that we often use during baptism. It's a powerful reminder of the symbolism and death and rebirth that's found in baptism. And as Southern Baptists, we fully immerse the individual under the waters as a symbol of being buried with Christ and then being raised to new life as they are brought out of the water. This symbolizes the person's union with the Spirit. This union of the Holy Spirit allows the newness of life described in this verse. In 1 John 4, 9, we see, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. As we live for God, we look expectantly to the life to come. 
In heaven, we'll finally have a world of peace, a world without evil and without sin, and the ability to join God forever, to enjoy being in his presence. The great American preacher Jonathan Edwards once said this so well about heaven. He said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. God promises a new motivation, a new mindset, but he also promises a new mission. He promises a new mission. Let's look back at the last verses from our main passage in verses 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. But therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It says here that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God has given us the responsibility for all believers to tell others about him and restore them to him. God has given you and I the most important message of all time. Think about how often we communicate with one another whether it's through just using our mouths or our cell phones or our laptops or whatever it may be, we communicate with each other all the time. Yet how often is the message of the gospel on our lips in what we talk about, in what we share? As his representatives, God wants us to help him tell others the good news. When we get to heaven, we won't be able to take our money or our possessions or anything with us to heaven, but we'll have the opportunity to see what people are there because we chose to share the gospel. To be used by God to change someone's eternal destination is greater than any possession here on earth. Pastor Charles Stanley once said, the joy you'll have when you meet that person in heaven will far exceed any discomfort you felt in sharing the gospel. Jesus' last words, his last command was given to us, to his disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is our mission. It ought to be at the forefront of the mind of every believer. As a church, as a community of believers, it is why we are here. It is our responsibility and privilege to share Christ wherever we go. Christ died that we might die. He died so that we might live, but he also died that we might share. Christ died that we might share. Imagine if the gospel had stopped with the death of Christ. 
Imagine how different the world would be, how hopeless it would be. He died so there would be a message worth sharing that God came to earth to die for the sins of all mankind in his resurrection, triumphing over death and the grave. One of the last things Jesus told his disciples was in John 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As soldiers, we have been given our marching orders. Staying home is not an option. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit will give you the power and the strength that you need. Many Christians today feel very uncomfortable discussing and talking about the Holy Spirit because often we don't understand it as well as the Father and the Son. When we don't understand something, we tend to not utilize it. In that way, the Holy Spirit is like the gas in the car of our Christian life that gets it going. But because we're uncomfortable using the fuel, we never leave the garage. Our spiritual lives become like an expensive sports car that just sits in the garage. It's, it's nice to look at, but we never experience the joy and the excitement that it was designed for. Our last verse this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This verse is encouraging for two groups of people. It's encouraging for the believer, surely, but it's also encouraging for the lost person, the not there yet person. It's a reminder for believers that Jesus is coming back, but also a message of hope for the one that doesn't know him yet. God is waiting on you. He wants you to come to him in repentance today. God wants you to start this new year with a new heart. Today is the day to make that promise to God, that you'll follow him. If you make that commitment, I can promise you that God will keep his word. He will make you new. We invite you to come forward today. I'd be happy to talk with you as would our other church staff members. We encourage you to come forward today as the music plays, to come to the altar, to surrender your heart and life to the Father and know that he wants to do something new in you today.